God, we love this city so much. And uh, it's the reason we're passionate about what we're going to be talking about in terms of church planting. Uh, we've been talking for a few weeks about what it looks, what it looks like to practically live lives on mission. Um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, basically the, the, uh, the way that it looks like for God's people. Sorry, I'm like a little bit emotional from just watching that video. Does anybody else feel that right now? It's like, I never thought I could get dusty about a city, but I feel that way, okay? So let me just collect my heart a little bit. And uh, Okay, so a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, what it looks like for God's people to live on a uh, mission for the orphan and be a people at, of the summit, uh, be a people of the summit to uh, really be passionate about adoption. Last week, we talked about... Uh, really how do we, as the people of God, think through a gospel lens about um, really a lot of the racial controversies and crises that we've experienced over the last, um, really not just few weeks, but really since our country began. And uh, tonight what we're going to talk about is church planting. Church planting is basically the process of going into a city like Denver of great need, great influence, starting a new church. Um, we're in one of the most entrepreneurial neighborhoods in the entire world. And so basically, kind of that's the language that you speak. Uh, basically, it's like doing a startup for churches, okay? So we're a little bit different. We're not trying to launch an app that makes multi, you know, uh, millions of dollars off of microtransactions. We're just trying to survive. That's kind of a, like our goal is just to be around every single year. And uh, the reason we're so passionate about this as a church is because we are a startup. A lot of you don't know this because a lot of you are new, but we actually are only five and a half years old. Uh, we actually met in my living room in this neighborhood five and a half years ago. Uh, here's actually a picture of the very first time uh, we got together. There it is. There's 12 of us in the living room. I've shown this picture a thousand times. Uh, this is a thousand and first time. Uh, we got together, and uh, my wife made food for everybody because that's kind of like what a church planner's wife always has to do. And then uh, we played board games. We played the Sellers of Catan. And uh, I won, yeah, uh, I won. It got, <laughs> I literally did. I'm not just saying that because I have the microphone. I really did win. Uh, and before that, in case you're like, who called me out on that? I know, who, there's a few of you who are actually there. I did win. And then, uh, as well as, we actually didn't just sort of eat and play, and play board games. Uh, we actually talked about like, who God had called us to be. And with a dozen people in my living room, uh, we talked about how we believe that we were a movement of God. That's what we talked about. We talked about how we believe we were a movement of God. And we weren't sort of trying to claim that we were uniquely gifted or influential. We just said in that moment, and some of you were there, uh, that when you objectively study the historical story of the church, really the only way to describe it is as being a movement, okay? It's important for you to understand this because a lot of you sort of assume, I don't know, like it's America and today, I don't know, I just hung out and I slept in and I brunched because that's what we do in Denver really well. I brunched and then I was at a hammock in City Park and then all of a sudden I was like, well, you know, I'll just go to the institution of the church instead of the institution of McDonald's tonight. Like, no, like when you study the story of the church, it's actually the story over the course of many generations over the course of spreading over many nations, like that's the reason you're sitting in this room is because 2,000 years ago, this marginalized Middle Eastern man named Jesus claimed to resurrect from the grave. And the first eyewitnesses who would have known if he was being like honest about that or not so believed that that they formed communities called churches around that singular church or that singular truth. And they told people who told people who told people and they started churches and started churches and started churches that now you sit in this room as the fruit of that particular legacy. That should blow you away. Even if you don't have any sort of belief in, who, in God, you're not really kind of like, you would not self-identify as somebody who's a follower of Jesus, that still should be a huge deal for you when you think about this critically. I mean, think about how rapidly culture tends to change, right? You think about how different the world is when you were a kid and the way it is now. I mean, I was just thinking about this even last night. Like, I was watching a movie with my daughter last night. I was thinking about how different her movie-watching experiences in our home than mine will be. Like, I don't know, I just read a story this past week about how they just made the last VCR in human history, 
Isn't that crazy? Like the last VCR in human history has been made. And for some of you, you're like, what's a VCR? Exactly, right? <laughs> like it was this machine and you had to put this tape in it and uh, you actually had to rewind the tape and fast forward the tape. You would actually get fined if you returned the tape, not rewound. And some of you were like, how did you live in the dark? It's like, I get it, right? That's just the nature of being a younger church. But I mean, it's just crazy, right? How different culture is just from 10 years ago, and yet we sit in this room largely doing the exact same thing that men and women did in the first century on the other side of the world. Man, you just at least got to think about that, and I think the only, again, kind of regardless of what you might believe about who God is, historically, the only objective way you can describe something like that is as being a movement. And so we see ourselves simply as the continuation of that legacy that we've received. And so for us as a church, we don't only receive that, we feel the responsibility to multiply that. And what we're going to talk about tonight is basically why we're passionate about multiplying the legacy of church planting, and then how we're practically going to go about doing that. Okay, so that's what we're going to do for the next half hour or so. Basically answer two big questions. Why are we passionate about this, particularly church planting in cities like Denver? Okay, why are we passionate about this? And then like, what does that practically look like uh, for us here at the summit. All right, so first, here's what we're going to look at. Uh, if you remember, Jesus, he gives the Great Commission. We talked about this last week. He says to make disciples of all nations. That's sort of the vision that you were meant to give your life to. Now, when you read the Bible, the primary means of executing that vision that Jesus lays out is the starting of churches, and in particular, the starting of churches in major urban centers of need and influence. What happens is this book called Acts is written and sort of tells a story of how the church goes from nothing to something. And in that, you basically see the first followers of Jesus go to the largest city in their area and they go there to start churches. That's why you see the summary statement at the end of the passage that we just read. It says, after these things, this is verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. He's sort of rattling off the major urban hubs of the day. Why is it that that would have happened? Historically and biblically, why was it that church planting was prioritized in urban centers of great influence? Well, we're going to answer that question in two particular ways. We're going to kind of take a 10,000-foot view from the air, and then we're going to go on the ground and study the story we just read in Acts 19. Now, we'll start from a 10,000-foot view. Uh, Historically, cities have always been prioritized by the church for four particular reasons, okay? Four particular reasons. The first would be density. What, What sort of characterizes a city is density and diversity. And we'll start with density. So you think about this, Jesus gives the mission to say, okay, make disciples of a lot of people, you know, where the most people sort of congregate together, cities are a really logical place to start. So I know I'm blowing your mind right now, but cities are a good place to start because there's a lot of people here. But there's not only density, but there's also diversity. That's what characterizes a city, density and diversity. So there's not just a lot of people, but a lot of kinds of people as well. Again, last week we talked about this, how at the heart of the Great Commission is not just to make disciples, but disciples of all people groups as well. And so a city is intrinsically diverse, right? You have socioeconomic diversity, you have uh, life stage diversity, you have ethnic diversity, uh, you have all sorts of expressions of the diversity, and it's the great place to sort of make disciples of all nations as well. Third is receptivity. Historically, uh, cities have been a place of the greatest receptivity. Now, I know I'm stereotyping a little bit here, okay? But a lot of us have had this experience as well. And let me just say this on the front end as well. I'm not, and a lot of you, like, are even visiting this weekend, okay? So I'm not saying if you don't live in a major urban center, 
God hates you, okay? I'm also not saying that you're like junior varsity and we're varsity. We're just sort of talking about particular realities, as well as I know a lot of you drive in from the suburbs too. So I'm not saying if you don't live two blocks that way, if you live in Arvada, get the heck out of here, all right? We, on the, we cool? Okay. Um, so with this, also receptivity. Now, here's where I'm going to offend you after saying all those nice things. Historically, rural and suburban communities have been places where people tend to be a little bit more set in their ways, um, a lot of you experience this growing up where people are a little bit older, they've had patterns of behavior, a lot of times they have family that's close by as well. And so on a whole, it's a harder place a lot of times to break into. It's why I admire guys who actually start churches in rural and suburban areas because it's so unbelievably hard. But people kind of have their, their life and their career and their relationships and their family and they've been doing things for decades and they're going to continue to do them until they die. But the city is a place where people a lot of times leave to escape that. A lot of you grew up around that. A lot of you grew up in Kansas, Wyoming, New Mexico, Arizona, you grew up, we're the largest city within a 500 mile radius, you weren't content with sort of doing the things the way they had always been done, and you chose to move here, or you chose to stay here because you were a little bit crazy, and you were kind of hoping to get away from a traditional way of thinking. In fact, historically, what happened is the gospel went into more rural areas, as people were like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But the urbanites, like us, were actually crazy enough to be like, wait a second, God became man, died for the sins of the world, and resurrected victorious over the greatest enemies of humanity? That makes a lot of sense. So that's why there's always been a lot of receptivity. Like the church didn't even break into kind of the rural areas until the third century, historically. The fourth reason is influence. Influence as well. Again, this is sort of basic sociology here, but historically, the cities have been the place that have largely been sort of a snapshot, a glimpse into where culture is headed over the next 10 or 20 years. Cities tend to be hubs of sort of innovation and of commerce and invention. Uh, you know, Denver made the cheeseburger. Like, that, we're innovating in, like, amazing, spectacular ways. Other cities have done great stuff, too, but I think that's the greatest invention in the history of America. So, you know, like, we're, we're really good at what it is that we do. And again, I'm not hating on you if you're more from a more rural area, but people tend to want to know what's going on in cities and look into what's happening in the city. This is why you'll never see CBS greenlight, like, CSI Tupelo, Mississippi, okay? Um, I'm not against Tupelo, Mississippi. It's just like you're probably not watching, you know, a TV show about it. But it's like we love Denver. We love New York. We love London. We love Boston. We love Los Angeles. Because that's just sort of the way that culture has been set up. And so historically, then, the church has looked at those kind of like 10,000-foot view realities of what's going on in cities and said, okay, this is a really great place for us to prioritize starting and advancing the mission and movement of God through starting churches in cities. Now, on the ground, then, let's look at a practical biblical example of some of the tangible, unique benefits that come from starting churches in cities like our own. And we'll look at the passage we just read, and I want you to look at three tangible benefits that come from starting churches in cities. Now, where all this went down, uh, can we bring up the map just so you know? I like to let it, I know we usually teach through books of the Bible, but I want to give you a little bit of context since we're just kind of flying by this week and next week in Acts. So if you look where it says Turkey, I don't have my lazy laser pointer with me. See, Turkey, that's where modern day Turkey is, and then that's where Ephesus was as well. And those were some of the other major cities that Paul prioritized were. But we're looking at modern day Turkey in terms of where all this is going down. You see it was on the water. It was a coastal city. Uh, it was a major port, a major hub. People from all over the world would hang out there. It actually had one of the wonders of the ancient world as well, the Temple of Artemis, which was this huge pagan temple where all sorts of sketchy pagan behaviors went down there as well. And Paul goes into the city to help start a church. 
Now, three practical fruits that we see from this. The first is this, is we see from this story, when we start churches and cities, we get pushed to a place where we have a need for God to be God. Okay? We have a practical need for God to be God. Now, look at the way the story kind of begins in verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, again, we're doing more of a flyby treatment of this passage than we typically do on a Sunday. But what's important for you to understand is like what theologians don't believe is this is sort of a normative pattern for doing ministry in a city, right? Like what you should not expect if I, I am truly anointed by God is that I would like blow snot into a tissue and hand it to you and you wouldn't get sick anymore, okay? You would get sick, and that's just gross overall. So, like, if I start doing that, do not receive it, okay? Just fire me in that moment. I've just gone off the deeper, and, and just don't, don't kind of, like, put up with that anymore. What we're seeing in this moment, what theologians believe, is that actually what happens is that God looked at Ephesus and said, this is a really unique place that really is obsessed with spirituality. And so I'm going to kind of speak the language that they're speaking. And so it's kind of this almost ironic thing where God's looking at these people that are like, you know, worshiping these, these uh, statues and like building this huge pagan temple. And they think that there's like spiritual power in that. And it's almost like God's like, hey, you guys that are worshiping a giant statue, look at this. We have handkerchiefs that are literally healing people in the name of Jesus. Like, should you open up your mind and eyes to the reality that I just might be who I say that I am and you are worshiping false gods? That's what he's doing in that moment. But while we would say it's not a normative pattern of ministry, at the same time, we would say a really crucial truth is being revealed here in this moment where we're seeing that when the gospel advances into uniquely hard places like Ephesus, or like Denver, Colorado, God steps in and does these amazingly miraculous works where he steps in and people look from the outside and they say the only explanation for this thing even beginning is that God stepped in and moved. That's what he's saying in this moment. And it's one of the greatest gifts of this journey that I've been experiencing in my own life. And I was just even thinking about this, okay? I was thinking about this. Even as we were worshiping, I looked up on the stage and five people led us in worship and we realized, you know what I realized? I realized we baptized four of you. I just like, I didn't even think about that this morning, but I'm standing there and I'm worshiping and I'm watching, I'm like, we baptized 80% of the band this, this evening. I'm like, man, like the only explanation, I'm like totally off of what I would even wanted to say, but it's just like, I looked at that and I was like, the only explanation for that is that God stepped in and moved and it's been so challenging to me. Like, let me, let me even just let you into a window into my own soul. For me, I, I was a pastor at a very, I was one of the pastors, I wouldn't leave the pastor, I was one of the pastors of a very, very large church in the South. And this is not an indictment on them at all because they're great and this is just me, okay? So I'm not trying to critique them. I'm just critiquing my own heart. But it was amazing for me when I was there. Like ministry was reduced in my own heart. A lot of times the sort of Christianity being a body of information that I'm trying to get other people to mentally affirm as well as sort of the extent of our talk was about systems and structures that could kind of grow the beast. And I remember getting charged to be like a team, on a team of two people that would start a new campus for this church and, like, if I'm just totally honest, we, I don't know if we ever prayed about, like, God doing this thing. And yet it grew to 800 people in six months. Is that good? Is that bad? It wasn't good for the welfare of my soul. Man, and then you get out here, and it's like everything you try doesn't work. Right? Like, everything you try doesn't work, and you give it your best shot, and you think you've, like, strategized perfectly, and nobody shows up to things. 
And you just fail again and again and again. And you think God's abandoned you, but he actually hasn't abandoned you. What he's doing is transforming you to a place where Christianity is transformed from being a mere body of information to an invitation into a relationship with the living God. And what happens, and this is what's happened to a lot of you because you're doing life in the city, and the city life is really, really hard. And you think God's abandoned you because it's so hard in the city. And you came here from Kansas, and we don't hate on Kansas, but it's just like, man, the, the life is harder sometimes here. Man, and the cost of living is super high, and what happens is God in his grace pushes you in a place where you actually have to start seeing him as provider. And the violence is so tangible. And a block away from my house, a couple days ago, there were 30 shots fired where I take my daughter all the time. We're not going to move. Because you know what? It's like, we got to start seeing God as protector. And the apathy, the, the hardness of heart in the city is so tangible, right? Because like a lot of you moved here and you're like, I mean, let's just be honest. What brought the majority of you here was not like, you know what I would love to do? I would love to move to Denver and join a church. I would love a, a, a regular weekend commitment that prevents me from skiing whenever I want to. That's what I would love to do, right? Like that's like none of you here in this room and the apathy and all the amazing things to go and do is so tangible. It's like God has to change hearts or the brokenness. Like, I mean, it's part of urban living, right? Homeless people are not a project that you go and visit every once in a while. They're your neighbors, right? Like the homeless people are living by my house, and say, okay, like, I've actually got to see God as redeemer and restorer of broken and hurting lives as well. And it's easy for you to believe as you do life in the city and as you minister in the city, this is particularly for those of you who are leading the life of our church as well, to believe when it gets hard that God has abandoned you, but he hasn't abandoned you. He's actually producing the greatest joy in you because he's revealing to you who he truly is. And you are being changed and transformed as well, where you no longer can see Christianity as some sort of body of information you mentally ascertain to. You have been invited into a relationship with the living God. And he is becoming to you who you have clamored for him to be. The city's so hard, it gives you that gift. Now, secondly, <clears throat> we see the unparalleled beauty of Christianity as well. The unparalleled beauty of Christianity. Now, what I love about the city, historically it's always been this way and it's this way as well, is that the city tends to be a melting pot for a wide diversity of ideas. I don't think truth is sort of afraid of being challenged. I think actually truth thrives in an environment where there's a free marketplace of ideas, and then it's sort of like, let's let the best idea win. Cities tend to be the best and easiest place for that to happen because a lot of people from all over the world come together and bring sort of competing worldviews and understandings of who God is. Now, you see this happen in the first century in Ephesus. Paul's kind of doing his thing, the gospel is advancing, a church is being started, and all of a sudden, you have these guys who bring sort of a competing philosophy, a competing worldview, a competing understanding of God. And what happens is sort of the bankruptcy of this belief system is revealed. That's what's happening in the scene. Now look at this. I love the scene. It's one of the funniest in the entirety of the Bible. Verse 13 says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of the high priest named Sceva. We get his name, so they came from a family of influence, were doing this. Now, just a little bit about these guys. What it appears is on one hand, they come from a prominent family. On the other hand, they're sort of culturally Jewish. On the other hand, they dabble in all sorts of weird expressions of spirituality and sort of bring together this hodgepodge, this melting pot, this conglomeration to sort of use whatever works. That's basically who these guys are. If this is 21st century, they're sitting on Oprah's couch and there's sort of a spiritual guru who's saying like, yeah, there's like a ton of different ways to know who God is and for him to bring healing into your life. I hate on Oprah, it's just, you know, just don't believe her theology, okay? 
Now, what happens, look what happens next. I, I don't even tell you, just read this. So they bring this, right? It's a competing philosophy and worldview. Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, which I'm like, how is this going down in the spiritual realm? Like, are they talking about people? How do they know people? But look at what they say to them. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded, which all you need to know about the bankruptcy of the spiritual belief is they literally go into the fight without pants and they leave the fight or with pants and they leave the fight without pants. Okay, like, like literally what happens in this moment is their belief system is so bankrupt, they walk away from this conflict naked. So um, I don't know. I feel like it's the most startling image. I don't really know what else to say about that. Okay, I feel like... <laughs> The nakedness of the belief system has been exposed. Okay, that's, that's it for all those jokes, okay? Um, all right. So here's what happens, and this is the great thing about the city, is the life in the city is so astoundingly difficult that the bankruptcy of false beliefs are a lot of times exposed very, very quickly. And this is a good thing. Now, at the surface, it seems like a really bad thing because none of us in this room love to be kind of shown that we're wrong, particularly wrong about aspects of life that matter the most. But you know what's way worse than being shown that you were wrong? It's being shown that you're wrong at the end of your life when it really matters the most. And that's a really scary thing. Can you imagine that going your entire life, decades after decade after decade after decade, being wrong about who God is, being wrong about the nature of heaven and hell, being wrong about what matters the most in life, being wrong about why you work, being wrong about understandings of sexuality, being wrong about family and parenting, and finding that out on your deathbed. And it is a gift to find out that you were wrong in your 20s, 30s, 40s about the areas of life that matter the most. It's a gift, but it's not a bad thing. It is a really, really good thing. And I've seen God write that story again and again in the life of the men and women who call the summit home. Now, a lot of what's kept you here in the city, a lot of what's kept or brought many of you here to the city are false beliefs, Right? It was just the same. Again, you probably weren't so spiritual and philosophical about it as these guys, but you had an unstated belief that if I move to a city where I'm close to mountains, all my deepest problems will go away. Can we just get like an amen? Who was like this, right? Like you don't have to, you know. It's like I experienced this, and here was this problem, and if I move and get close to mountains, it won't be this way anymore. Some of you came here for a relationship, and you came with the unstated belief that like, man, if I can live with that guy, like, my heart will be just overflowing with joy forevermore. It might have been a job. It might have been quality of life. It might be, I mean, I meet people in the city all the time. What brought you here? Weed? Why? Because, like, I figure if I smoke enough weed, like, I'll just finally be happy. And, and a lot of you, this is what I love about being five and a half years old as a church, is we've, ex- we've seen, I mean, the story of the men and women of the summit are a lot of you who came into the city with those sort of presuppositions about what matters the most in life and God and his grace has revealed their bankruptcy to you. And he's changed you. And it, he broke you and he hurt you and it's, it sucks, right? But man, it is his grace that he is revealing where you are wrong about the areas of life that matter the most before it's too late for you as well. And the city has the propensity to do that. Third, what we see 
is the opportunity for unparalleled life change as well. What we see in this story is the gospel is planted, a competing worldview is offered, the gospel wins, people hear about this, they're changed by this. Look at the degree of change that they experience. Verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, so there's like we talked about last week, the gospel jumping cultural walls and boundaries as well. Everybody is being changed by this message, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled in and also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their, their practices. Now, look at the practical expression of their repentance. Verse 19, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, what's the point of this passage? It is not everybody goes home and burns their Backstreet Boy CD, Okay. Um, although you maybe should because it's not high-quality music, okay? Me and my wife disagree about this. It's like a major conflict in our marriage, but she, like, still (laughs) loves the Backstreet Boys. I don't understand it, but, you know, like, commitment and covenant and all that good stuff Uh, (laughs) as well. (laughs) Our daughter's sick, and she's not here. If I said, anyways, so don't tell her I said that. I'm just kidding. Um, Here's the point of it. It's, man, like the work that God does in these people's lives is so astoundingly radical that they will literally do whatever it takes to fully, faithfully follow him. So they do. I mean, that's why they're like, that's why the author of Acts, a guy named Luke, is telling you the amount of money when he says 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, one piece of silver would be a day's wage. So if you sort of do the math and bring it into today's currency, this would be roughly $8,172,000 particularly because in the ancient world, books were like the most expensive thing you could own. This is pre-printing press, okay? So like every book is done by hand and like one of the most precious items you could possess is a book and these people are taking the most precious, the most expensive things that they own and the gospel has so changed them that they've actually said, you know what, like even my money isn't off limits to you, God, which is like the hardest thing for us to give to God, right? You're saying like whatever it takes, whatever it takes for me to fully faithfully follow you, we will do, even if it is great expense to ourselves. Now, it's one of the things I love about this church, because we are the unlikely, we are the surprises, we are not the predictable ones to be in the life of the church, myself included. And I was thinking about this this past week, and again, I've been getting to Dusty a lot, because that's just what I do. And it's just like, man, I'm scrolling through my Instagram feed. I don't know why. I was just getting nostalgic. And I'm looking at weddings and I'm looking at births of people in the life of our church. I'm looking at people who dated, who didn't date anymore. I'm looking at, um, gosh, man, it was like that experience was like snapshot after snapshot after snapshot of why we exist as a church. And when I first started this thing, just full vulnerability with you, I kind of loved people, but I largely loved the idea of building an organization. I did. I was just kind of like, man, I want to be strategic and start my own thing. And yeah, like hopefully we'll be strategic enough to get enough people to be around this thing and we'll exist five and a half years in. Man, I'm on the other side of it and it's like, we are not in the organization growing business. We are in the life change business. And in this, we've seen like the fruit of the Summit Church and the work that we've seen as the gospel advance to this city and the repentance that we've seen in the people of this city is there will be generations of beautiful ramifications because of the work that's been done. Man, I think about how in the work of the gospel, sins that people thought would plague them for the rest of their lives have been put to death. Man, I think about how in the gospel, some of you have experienced abuse and you thought that abuse would haunt you for the rest of your life and God has given you victory over that. 
Man, I think about how there's been dads given new vision about what it means to be a dad. I think about how there's been moms who have been given new vision about what it means to be a mom. I think about how there's children who now are being parented by that mom and dad as well. I think about how there are singles who have been given dignity, value, and worth because the church a lot of times craps on singles and your family craps on you if you're single. And you go home for Christmas and your grandma's like, why aren't you married yet? You're 22, you're gonna be alone for the rest of your life. And it's like, well, what the heck, grandma? And we're like, no, like Jesus was single. Paul was single. You're not incomplete because you don't have a significant other. That's stupid. Anyways, I'm not going to cuss. Okay, it's stupid. Like it's just, it's just stupid for you to think that way. And the gospel doesn't mean you have to date really bad men or women. And it's just like again and again and again, story after story after a story. Like this is how cities are changed. This is how the world is changed through life change in the gospel, person by person, family by family, relationship by relationship for the glory of God. And it's just like, that's why we exist. And it's like, I just go on the other side of like, why would I do anything else? You know, like, like, why would I even look at this as an organization? It's just like the greatest privilege in the world. And it's like, well, I love to challenge you to be involved here and to give here and to belong here and to move here if you don't live here yet. And just to be like, and be like what, what else could you do that competes with that? Like, like, how many weekends can you be in the mountains that are better than that? By the way, anti-mountain, just like get back for the PM service, right? All right. <laughs> I'm just saying everything I'm feeling right now. Um, all right. Now, all right. So that's the, the, that's the first question. Why do we plant churches in cities? Because it's like the most freaking amazing thing you could ever do. Now, second question, how are we going to go about doing that? How are we going to practically go about doing that? And so practically with this, I just want to inform you how we as a church are going about the practical like multiplication of this vision uh, in, our, in, our, in the life of our church. So some of this is gonna be logistical, but I've just learned that a lot of you like to be informed about how and why we're doing what it is that we're doing. Now, first, what we're doing is empowering globally. We feel the responsibility to plant churches in Denver, but we also feel the responsibility to plant churches at the very ends of the earth. But our real philosophy of ministry when it comes to helping start churches on other, other countries uh, is to really empower indigenous local leaders, okay? That's what we're really passionate about. So we believe that in another context, the people from that context are the best pastors that can be there, all right? So we come in, we help, but they're in charge. We submit to them. We serve them. They're the bosses. They determine what's right. And we just ask the question of how can we help, and we do whatever it takes to do it. And we're currently doing that in two particular locations. One is Guatemala City, the largest city in Central America, and the other is London, okay? So that's just to quickly inform you about that. Secondly, we are training locally. We are training locally as well. So there's a church planning organization called the North American Mission Board, and they've identified our church as one of several churches in the Denver area that have been entrusted with being called a church planting multiplication hub or something like that. I don't know. It sounds really important and more important than it really is. Okay. Now, with this, or at least more I don't know. It looks like we know what we're doing. Anyways, so with that, what happens is they sort of identify guys that are interested in starting churches, and they connect them to us to see if it's a good fit for us to give them sort of an environment to learn in for a year about what it means to start churches in this city. And so we didn't have this, actually. Uh, It actually looks like guys moving to the city if they're not from there and connecting to a church like ours and having a year to do like a residency or an apprenticeship to basically learn like what does it look like to do ministry here? What can I do well? What do I not do well? Um, what have you guys done well? What have you not done well? How can I learn from your successes and mistakes? Uh, and it's a really cool opportunity. We actually have three guys in the process of doing that. One is Corbin Hobbs, uh, who we're getting ready to send out tonight. Uh, the second is Skylar Anderson, who will leave us in six months. And the third is a guy who's not here yet. We'll introduce you. He'll be here in October as well. 
Third, we will, with this, be launching a new family of churches. We'll be launching new family churches. We are calling the Mile High Family of Churches. Look at that logo. Isn't that impressive? Can I just get, yeah, isn't that awesome? Woo, yeah. The great thing about logos, let me let you know a little bit of a leadership secret, is great logos make it seem like you have a lot better idea of what you're doing. Um, so, <laughs> so we're just starting this thing, and we're figuring out this thing. But one of the things that we felt as we brought guys in to learn about what does it mean to start churches here, is there will be a few exceptional situations where there will be people that we want to lock arms with uh, for generations to come. Uh, we as a church have always tried to figure out, like, how do we sort of come alongside other churches in the city beyond just being like, man, we love what they're doing. Like, how do we actually lock arms with them? And kind of it's like, I don't know, some of you work career paths where there's a lot of times, you know, like one-year internships, and like every once in a while, they'll hire one of the people into the actual company. That's the way we're kind of thinking about this. It's not like the guys that we don't say yes to in this, like we hate or are terrible or going to fail. We don't feel, it's just like in unusually exceptional times, there will be people who are so like-minded, and we're basically starting the almost the exact same church. We want to lock arms and join into the Mile High family of churches. Now, Corbin and the Heights Church of their planting, we'll introduce you to them at the very end, will actually be the first people who are joining that. So the Mile High family of churches actually exists now. There's two of us, uh, which is awesome as well. It only takes two to be a family, right, bro? So uh, there's us. And, uh, and with this, we're going to do some really cool things together. So uh, just some practical things so you can kind of wrap your mind around this. We'll meet uh, as leadership monthly for accountability and prayer and strategizing together. Uh, we will meet uh, as churches uh, once a year on Super Bowl Sunday. So Super Bowl Sunday, we're going to try to find some sort of place. I don't know where it is. We're all our church. Uh, church is. We'll get together and uh, we'll gather in the morning. That'd be awesome. The Broncos will repeat in the evening. It'll be like the best day you've ever had in your entire life. I'm super pumped uh, about that as well. Uh, what else are we doing? We're going to do some shared training. So we talked last week, we're bringing a guy uh, named D.A. Horton in, who's one of the leading evangelical voices on matters of race and ethnicity through a gospel perspective. That will not be a Summit Church event. It'll actually be a Mile High Families of church, uh, Churches event as well. So we'll be sharing that and hosting that as well. And I don't know, anything else I'm forgetting with that? We'll just, we're just always continually trying to ask the question. They'll be independent. They'll have their own leadership, their own name. Uh, we feel like Denver is a little bit skeptical to franchising. It's why we, like, we love to burn down Walmarts here in the city. Uh, but at the same time, they'll be independent, but we'll be interdependent. And we're going to find strategic ways for us to do together uh, what's better for us to do together and things that we can't naturally do apart. So really pumped and excited about that as well. And then fourth and finally, um, we have no plan for this other than just sort of laying it out right here in this moment. We're going to be prioritizing development internally. Now, we're super excited. We're super, super excited to have these opportunities and to train leaders, and these are great guys, and we're super excited about that. But we feel as a leadership, the future of this church is us being really good at equipping a lot of you who call the Summit Church home, who feel like the least likely church planner in the world to start churches in this city. And I understand, like the vast majority of you, probably all of you in this moment, literally every single one of you in this room probably right now are like, oh, heck no. Actually, you probably didn't say that, but I can't say it because I'm being recorded. So anyways, you know how this goes. And I'm just asking you to crack open your heart, maybe a little bit, and ask yourself the question, like, well, maybe, like, what, why not you? Like, why not you? Man, and I really want to challenge some of you to start prayerfully exploring the idea of, like, what would it look like for me to pastor a new church in this city? Like, that's what I believe. And, and here's the thing. Before we even got out here, one of our greatest prayers was that the future church planners of Denver would be, like, people who are sitting in this room right now and don't even self-identify as Christians yet. And that's our desire. That's our goal. Yeah, like, the goal is practically that, like, I don't know. Like, we want to see non-Christians become leaders. We want to be the type of church where four out of the five band members are people that we baptize. 
That's the type of church we want to be. And that's the type of church planting center we want to be as well. And I'm pumped, if you can't tell. I'm like really excited about this. Man, I'm super excited about what God's doing. We feel like as we look at the other side of this, like, man, the, the only explanation of us being able to share this with you and talk about this is that God stepped in uh, and he moved. And I hope you understand that you're a part of something really, really huge. I mean, so many of you are part of this because you're going. Uh, any of you who gives money to our church, you're a part of this. Any of you who calls the summit home, even just being here in this room, you are a part of this advancing. I realize kind of like in the moment, it doesn't feel particularly spectacular, but gosh, like when you take a step back and see what it is that God is doing, the only way to objectively describe what he is doing here in this city is that the movement continues. Now I was thinking about this, like I was thinking about this story, for example, and you look at Acts uh, 19 and you see uh, you know, the gospel advances to Ephesus, and the gospel ultimately does advance to Rome as well. And in fact, it actually advances to Rome to the point that in 70 AD, uh, basically the Roman government gets so threatened by this, they have this major backlash against the church. They actually crush the church in Jerusalem, which at first it seems a little bit bad, <clears throat> but all of a sudden the church scatters, and they launch these three church planting centers in Antioch, Rome, and Alexandria. And all of a sudden, these become the church planting centers that start churches all over the Roman Empire until the point of the third century. They actually measure historically that a half of the Roman Empire actually self-identified as Christian. You have in 280, the first churches being planted in rural Italy. In 432, you have a guy named Patrick respond to a dream, and he actually goes to Ireland to start churches. Um, it's funny and ironic because we as Americans, we celebrate that by like getting drunk on really bad beer. But this is actually like a legit Christian holiday uh, in terms of like the amazing work that he did there uh, in that country. In 596, you have a guy named Augustine go to England, and he settles in a place called Canterbury. And from there, he actually baptizes 10,000 people and starts tons of churches. In 635, you have the first missionaries in China. In 718, you have a guy named Boniface go out of England and start churches in Germany. Over the next 500 years, it gets a little bit sketchy because you have something called the Dark Ages. But the really cool thing that comes out of the Dark Ages is this great passion for the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. And if the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, to translate the word of God into the language of the people. And at the end of the Dark Ages, this is by 1200 AD, the Bible is available in 22 different languages. And actually in 1526, a guy named William Tyndale, he publishes the English New Testament, an attempt to get the Bible into the hands of English-speaking people. So you should be like, that's sweet, that's awesome. And in fact, you know what? It was so dangerous for him to do this that the government felt like it threatened their authority to such a degree that the King of England had Tyndale imprisoned in October 6, 1536, had him strangled and burned at the stake. His last words being, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, which that king went on to be King James. So if you know the King James version of the Bible, man, it's just amazing the astounding things that God does. From the 15th to 18th centuries, a wave of missions happening happens with 1498. The first Christians are spotted in Central Africa. In 1580, missions advance actually to Japan. A lot of conversions, uh, but the government crushes this movement as well. 70 pastors are drowned upside down in the ocean. Uh, basically to let the tide do the work for the government as well. 1611, a guy named Thomas Helwes leaves Amsterdam and starts the first Baptist church in England. In 1638, persecution rises in England to such a degree that a guy named Roger Williams leaves England and goes to America to start the first Baptist church in a place called Providence, Rhode Island. What, what, Rhode Island? 1727, the first Baptist church is started out of there, down in North Carolina. It's called Shiloh Baptist Church. From there, a guy named George Whitfield in 1740 goes down there to sort of help the work of what's going on. And God moves in this tremendous way, and he returns back to the Northeast, and he tells all these people about what's going on. 
And all of a sudden, what happens is a guy named Shubal Stearns hears this, and he feels called by God to move from the Northeast down to North Carolina to help the gospel advance to the very ends of the earth, a place called North Carolina, which is crazy to think about. So him, his wife, and his 14 children, which, oh my gosh, 14 children, he, his wife, and 14 children moved down there, and they started a church with, you guessed it, 16 original church members. And in two years, they grow that church to several hundred people, and that church actually planted 42 other churches in North Carolina. Now, out of that movement was churches started in a place called Durham. In 1845, the first church has started, Baptist church has started there. They started Piney Grove Church that they moved locations twice. And all of a sudden, that church changes its name to First Baptist Church, and they started a church called Grace Baptist Church in 1921. 20 years later, in 1962, they started a church called Homestead Heights Baptist Church. 40 years after that, that church is dying, and a guy comes in and reinvigorates the vision and changes its name to the Summit Church and casts this vision of starting a thousand churches over the next 40 years. And just a few years after that, January 16, 2011, we were sent out and blessed by that church after being trained there to start a little bit of Bible study in our living room in this neighborhood. And it's just like, yeah. (laughs) And it's like the movement advances and it continues. And now tonight, we send out our first church as well. The movement advances and continues. And I know it's a grind and I know it's hard and I know it's not glamorous to be here every Sunday and to serve and to have people abandon you and have things be really, really hard and to give money away. But this is what you're a part of. This is what you're a part of. The story of Christianity can only be described as a movement, and the movement continues through the people of the Summit Church. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for what you've done, and we do truly just give thanks. So the only explanation for what we've shared and what we're a part of is that you've stepped in and moved. And I pray with really joyful and, and grateful hearts, we would taste and see the reality of who it is that you are, and that you would continue to do this work in this city. And uh, as we send out our first church, and as we be an environment to help other churches grow and learn and be trained, we do pray that you would do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine in this city and ultimately to the very ends of the earth. And we give thanks for having some small part in it. God, please continue to do this through us. Let us be faithful. Let us be sacrificial. Let us remember the magnitude of what it is that we're a part of. And God, we just humbly ask for more, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, who you are and the movement that we come from that you've ignited in the story of humanity. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.